And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Numbers, uh, everyone's favorite book, of course, uh, but better than the name of the book uh, suggests, uh, the book of Numbers chronicles Israel's journey from Mount Sinai towards the promised land, a land which the first generation, that first generation having been delivered uh, out of slavery from Egypt, uh, would never enter. That first generation never entered uh, the promised land on account of their unbelief and their faithlessness. Uh, instead of entering the land, they entered a sort of penance where for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. Now, last Sunday, uh, we talked about uh, the number 40 and its significance, uh, particularly how Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness uh, go together with Lent. And Jesus, as the second Adam, Jesus as uh, the faithful Israelite, right? We can think of Jesus's person and work in the Gospels uh, as a, a one-man remnant, uh, correcting uh, mistakes that had been made uh, by God's people according to the flesh. So Jesus as the second Adam, Jesus as the faithful Israelite, uh, Jesus as the head of the church, the one who has united universal human nature unto himself, he goes out into the wilderness. He goes out into the wilderness uh, to bring victory where there had been failure. This 40 days that our Lord spent in the wilderness, like everything that Jesus does, this going into the wilderness is a vicarious act. It's on behalf of the people of God. Jesus went into the wilderness to redeem Israel's wilderness wandering. Our wilderness wandering. In Numbers 21, Israel, after having won a victory over the Canaanites, uh, Israel, as was their want, if you read the Old Testament, started to grumble and complain. Verse 5 of chapter 21. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That last phrase, as I read it, it, sh it sends shivers up and down my spine. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. The bread they're speaking of is the manna, the manna which came from heaven, uh, the food of angels, as the psalmist calls it, which is what? It's a type of the Lord's body, which we receive in the Holy Eucharist. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. 
and many of the people of Israel died. God sent snakes. Okay, why snakes? Uh, I would contend that this harkens back to uh, the Garden of Eden, where the serpent, the dragon, the Satan uh, tempts Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve are bit by sin uh, and death. Uh, it's also been argued, I remember this, what is circa, well not circa, summer 2019, Jonathan and I took a class with Father John Bear, and he was talking about in that summer course that the tongue resembles a snake. The tongue has a serpentine shape. And so he says, since the people, their sin was a sin of the tongue, that they, they grumbled and complained against the Lord, God sends snakes. This is not an idea, nor is it a connection foreign to the Scriptures. James, uh, interestingly, uh, the kinsman of our Lord, in his epistle, makes a connection between serpents and tongues. James 3.8 says of the tongue that it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's a serpentine image. Continuing in Numbers 23, verse 7 and following. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Looked at the serpent and he lived. One commentator explains the text this way. He says, the people who looked on the bronze or the copper serpent on the signal pole lived. They lived because the motionless copper serpent signaled that the power of the venom in them was now dead. And commentators have noted that uh, bronze could be translated or understood as copper, and that the copper in this region would have had a reddish tint, which connects it to blood, to sacrifice, to atonement. So it's against the backdrop of this story where the people of Israel look at the copper serpent and live that Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That lifting up is his death on the cross. Numbers 21 prefigures that the lifting up of Christ on the cross gives life. So that we who have been bitten by the serpent, we who are full of the venom of sin which leads to death, can gaze upon the crucified Jesus, now the crucified and risen Jesus, and live. In his death, we have life. For as the prophet Isaiah says, by his stripes, we are healed. 
St. Augustine writes this. He says, what is the serpent lifted up? He says, quite plainly, the Lord's death on the cross. For as death came by the serpent, it was figured by the image of a serpent. The serpent's bite was deadly. The Lord's death is life-giving. A serpent is gazed on that the serpent may have no power. What is this? A death is gazed on that death may have no power. Just as they who looked on the serpent perish not by the serpent's bites, so they who look in faith on Christ's death are healed from the bites of sin. By the death of his son Jesus, God gives us life. And it is through the sacrament of baptism, of being born of the water and the Spirit, being immersed in water, or water poured over you, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and be anointed with the oil of chrismation, that Jesus' death becomes our death. That his life becomes our life. And the thing that we have to understand is that God wants to give us life. I mean, what, what a basic elementary thing to say, but it, it, it bears to be emphasized. Because many of us, because of our church background, because of the way that salvation has been talked about, it's as if it's the Son versus the Father. God the Father is very angry that we have sinned, and he's out to get us. And so Jesus comes, and he dies to appease the wrath of the Father. And so it's God the Son rescuing us from God the Father. That is not the Christian faith. That is not the teaching of Scripture, but rather for God. That's the person of the Father. So love the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God is not out to get you. Now we can take that attitude and go too far the other direction and treat God like he's the cool uncle, right? We'll give you a sip of, you know, whatever from the liquor cabinet when you're 12. Or, no. That we forget who God is. That God is holy. That God's not to be trifled with. But both are true. God is holy and God is good. And God is for us. Today's collect begins O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy. The prayer of humble access, that's that last prayer that we pray right before we receive the sacrament. And there is in it an implicit warning to not eat and drink the sacrament unworthily, to, to never in our hearts or with our lives Regard the manna from heaven as Israel did in Numbers. 
as worthless bread, to eat and drink and not to discern the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's our final preparation, and we say, we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And mercy is not just the withholding of punishment. When we pray, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, it's an invocation for God's transformative and loving presence in our midst. God desires not the death of the sinner, but that he may turn from his wickedness and live. God wants to turn our gaze for our good. This is for our good. Away from sin and death and towards Jesus in whom there is life. That's what repentance is about. I know the list of things that you, you will get in your time at this church, I know, is growing. But one of the things is this. We will understand as a church, so help me God, that the call to repentance is a call to life. That the call to repentance and the gift of repentance is God's mercy and God's goodness to his people. To call unto life, to abundant life. When you repent, there's a transformation of the mind. The Greek is nous. In Hebrew, the emphasis is leaving one path, namely the path that leads to death and destruction, doing a 180 and, and going back and, and taking up again the, the journey on the narrow road which leads to what? Life. And that this is a journey as we see in John 3, which began at baptism, which is the sacrament of new birth, birth which is from above. Christ came not to bring condemnation, but salvation. Not retribution, but redemption. Again, for God so loved the world, this is the manner in which the Father loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. The church, uh, as, as the renewed Israel, as the new Israel, now walks in the wilderness of this world. Uh, we're not home yet. We're not in the promised land. The age to come has not arrived fully and finally. But we find ourselves as the church, uh, you know, in, the, in that to which the Israel story pointed. You know, we have been delivered out of Egypt. We've been delivered from slavery to sin 
and to, from death and from Satan. We have been born again by water and the Spirit, by baptism and chrismation. And at times, or so, or so I've heard rumors, we as members of the church can walk according to the flesh instead of according to the Spirit. I mean, I know none of us would ever walk according to the flesh, but of, of, course, of course we do. We fall and we fail. Like Israel, we can at times pine for Egypt, speaking against the Lord and even treating the bread from heaven with contempt. But as the Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Part of Lent is, is allowing, is cooperating with grace, allowing the Holy Spirit of God that lives within you to search your heart and to bring to mind the ways in which you've been bitten by the serpent and the ways in which you need to be cleansed and forgiven and healed and transformed. And this is not to discourage us. This is not to bring us to a place of despair. Because like the Israelites in the book of Numbers, you can look, not to the type, but to the reality, you can look to the crucified and risen Jesus and be healed and live. His precious blood poured out in death on the cross is the precious antidote for the venom of our sins, the medicine of immortality which defeats death. So brothers and sisters, in a spirit of repentance and humility, let us gaze upon our Lord, the one high and lifted up upon the cross, the crucified and risen Jesus. Let us look at him with the eyes of our hearts, knowing that it is through his death that we know love and attain to life, and that here in this place, we share in his death and in his resurrected life by eating the bread of heaven and drinking the cup of salvation, which are truly to us a comfort. It is a comfort to the penitent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.